Amen. Father, uh, we do just come before you this morning in the name of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we just declare from the outset that we trust you. We thank you that <laughs> no matter how many times we fail, um, you, you call us to just keep believing your promises and to just keep trusting you. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. You're the beginning and the end. And so, Father, we just ask that, Lord, today that you would once again just strengthen our faith, set our eyes firmly, squarely, wholly on you and on you alone, the author and perfecter of our faith. We, we love you. We pray that today that you would have your way and that your will and that your purposes would be accomplished among us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. How you guys doing? Good? Okay. <laughs> great, great. Genesis chapter 12, please. Genesis chapter 12, this is where we're at um, in our Bible reading plan for 2022. The first couple months of this year, we're going to be studying the life of Abraham, or Abram, as we see today until God changes his name a few chapters later. I want to just share here from the outset uh, just kind of my, my prayer and my burden for us as a, as a church um, is, and I shared this at the prayer meeting on Wednesday evening for those of you that were there, but I, my, my burden for us um, is that in this year that God would truly strengthen our faith and really help us to trust him. You're like, well, what does that mean, really help us to trust him? I, uh, you, you might disagree with me, but I would argue that we live in a world that is really full of counterfeits and knockoffs. Um, the first time I experienced these, some counterfeit products was on my uh, eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C. Did anybody take that? And you're walking around D.C. and, you know, seeing all the monuments and stuff, and everywhere, now this is, you know, this is going to date me. My boys constantly tell me I'm old, so I just accept it, you know. I'm not arguing with anybody about that at this point, but this was back in the 90s, the mid-90s, um, before all the uh, weird boy bands came on the scene, NSYNC and Backstreet, anyway, never mind. But, um, but we were walking around, and, and everybody, on every corner, they were selling uh, these Oakley sunglasses. You guys remember Oakley? Are, are Oakley still a thing? I, I don't wear sunglasses much anymore. But Oakley's, like, the real Oakley's, the authentic Oakley's, they were, like, 100 bucks, 200 bucks. That was more, more cash than I had at that time. But these guys were selling Oakley's on the street corner for, like, $10. We were like, yeah, you know, so multiple pairs of Oakleys and different, different colors and things. And, uh, and they looked real to us, but finally we, we got one and a cop came walking up. And this guy that just sold them to us very quickly packed up his stuff and just kind of took off. And then, you know, he, he caught us a little group of eighth grade boys and he just looked at us and he goes, you know that those aren't real, Right? And we were like, what? What do you mean? Not real Oakleys. They were, they were counterfeit. Um, 
whatever we thought we had, even if they looked similar, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the real deal. And fake sunglasses, fake purses, fake products, knockoff products of any sort, you know, whatever. Um, I'll save money where I can. But when it comes to our faith, but when it comes to our faith, I want us to have an authentic, real deal faith. And I, I found this, these couple words very helpful. Again, I shared this um, briefly as a little devotional Wednesday night at the prayer meeting. But throughout history, um, men of God have, have used different types of language to try to explain different aspects of our faith. And um, three of the words, these are Latin words, I'm not saying this to, to be fancy, but um, this is the words that they would use to describe different aspects of our faith throughout his, history were these words notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Um, notitia is simply like the information or the facts of our faith. So for example, if you're going to have a saving faith in Christ, you need to understand the information of the gospel. You need to understand uh, that Jesus came uh, fully God, fully man, that he died on the cross in our place as our substitute, and that he rose again on the third day. Those are the facts, okay? You can't have saving faith without that information, which is why it's important that we take the gospel into the world, and this is the message, part of the message that we share. Secondly, another aspect of our faith is this, this word ascensus, which it's this, it's the English idea here is the idea that we, um, that we would agree with it, okay? So it's one thing to know the facts that Jesus came, died in your place as your substitute, rose again on the third day. That's the, inform, the information. But the second part of it is you have to believe that it's actually true. Um, you have to believe that that actually happened, that Jesus actually did that 2,000 years ago, that he came really lived, really died, really rose again, and now is ascended uh, at the right hand of the Father. You need to agree that that is true, not just know the information. And let me pause here and say that my burden with this, and the reason I'm sharing this with you, lies with the fact that for, for many of us, not all of us in this room, but for many of us here, I know that we grew up in church. For many of us that grew up in this area, many of us grew up in a very religious area, and we grew up hearing that information and being told that this is true. And so we nodded our heads and we said, yeah, that's true, I agree. That's what good Christians believe. And then I, I, I don't know, I don't know anybody's heart except my own, and the Bible tells me that I don't even know my own heart very good. God knows it perfectly. But my fear is that many of us our faith could only be described as having notitia and ascensus. In other words, the information and then agreeing that that's true. But there's another aspect to our faith that um, men throughout history have used, and that's this word fiducia. And this is the idea of confidence or a personal trust. If you're, if you're familiar, um, if any of you guys have done any sort of like investing or have a retirement plan, uh, many times the word fiduciary is used of somebody um, who might do retirement planning or investing. And a fiduciary is obviously from this word, and a fiduciary is supposed to be one who inspires trust. Because a fiduciary um, is somebody who, who is legally required to put their client's interests ahead 
of their own interests or the interests of the company. And so they inspire trust. And it's this, it's this, it's this third aspect of faith. Again, notitia, the information, a census agreeing that it's true, belief that it's true, is necessary. But my burden is that we, would also, is that we wouldn't just have those first two, but also this fiducia, this confident trust that we would know that Jesus died in our place and that we wouldn't just know it mentally, but that we'd see it, that we'd know it, and that we love it. You, you can't, to say that you have faith in Christ and that faith is not accompanied by a love for Christ is a counterfeit faith, folks. And please hear me this morning. I, we're going to be talking about this a lot as we study Abraham's life, who is the Bible refers to as the father of our faith over the next several weeks. Um, I'm not here to accuse anyone. But I, if I'm just being honest with you, this is what most burdens me for our area. Is because a lot of people know the information, they can repeat the gospel to me, um, and they won't deny it. They say, yeah, yep, that's true. That's what I've always been taught. But their faith doesn't seem to be accompanied many times by an actual love for Christ. That they understand that I put my trust in this and he is my savior. Apart from him, I would have no hope. Save me from eternal separation. And hear me, I, I think the counterfeit, that this is, I, I'm a pastor, I believe in church, I believe in like the church and what God is doing, like I'm, I'm for this, my kids are church kids, they're pastor's kids, they grow, grew up in church, I'm, I'm like I'm for that. <laughs> but one of the dangers or the ditches that can come from growing up in church is that we only have this mental assent where we acknowledge that it's true and we don't deny it, but that personal trust is lacking. And even where it does exist, that personal trust, that, that confidence, that fiducia aspect of our faith, um, <clears throat> it's, I, I want that, even if we've got it, I want it to grow in us. I want it to become strong. Your faith can grow. I would quote Romans 4, uh, 20. Says that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That I want our faith to to grow in this year um, and every year, but because it's it's this it's when we have a vibrant, active day by day, moment by moment, fiducia trust in God and who His Word says that He is that we experience his life. And I want us to have life. I want us to have joy. I want the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in our lives for his glory and, and for our good and for our satisfaction. But it all comes down to every single day, just as we sang. I'm telling you, that we just, that little tag or bridge or whatever it was in that song, that's the whole Christian life, folks. We trust you in all things we trust you. That's it. You just, just keep trusting. You with me? Okay. I know I haven't read the text yet. Here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to go through this chapter. It falls, it's, it's pretty evenly divided into, into two parts. Um, I would title those Faith and Famine. Faith and Famine. The first nine verses, Abraham's faith, and then the last part, the famine that he experiences. And I'm just going to read through it, and I'm going to give some commentary and teach a little bit along the way. Uh, but I just want to give a lot of explanation here, and I want to come back and I want to give three um, kind of succinct theological implications. Because, again, Abraham is referred to uh, throughout the Bible as the father of our faith, and there are massive theological implications here that I want to make sure that we get and that we understand so that we have roots that go down deep um, and make us strong in the Lord and that all of the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in our lives for his honor and his glory. But let's just begin to read Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, and you're like, well, who's this Abram guy? Why is the Lord speaking to him? What did he, what, what, what did he do? Well, nothing. Nothing. That's the thing. You've got to get this. The Lord came to Abram, and here's what we know about him. Um, his wife was barren, couldn't have any kids, which in a patriarchal, familial you know, community, society, where it's all about you know, having kids and do it like that's a pretty, pretty big deal, but they're barren, can't have any kids. And here we see that when we're going to begin to talk about our faith, we first need to begin to talk about God and his sovereignty and coming to us with his promises that God is the initiator here. You're like, why did he, why did he come to Abram? Was Abraham, he, he wasn't, no, there's nothing special about Abram. Nothing. This is God's grace showing up in his life, and the Lord just appears to him and his wife in their barrenness, and he says to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will bless you, or I'm sorry, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram has done nothing to deserve this, but God, in his goodness and grace, shows up with his promises. And here's kind of a little summary of the promises. One is that he's going to give him a land. He's going to give him this, this, this promised land, as it's referred to, this land of rest, as it's referred to in different places throughout the Scriptures. He's going to make him a great nation. He's going to bless him. But that blessing is for a purpose. That blessing is so that he will be a blessing. Very important. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And yes, it's kind of by implication here. I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. Um, I read some commentaries this past week for that last little phrase, though, verse 2, where it says that so you'll be a blessing. It's very explicit in the Hebrew that it is also another command. Yes, I'm going to bless you, but here's the be a blessing, be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So he's promising protection, he's promising provision, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God has big plans uh, for Abram, for God's honor and glory. And so verse 4, verse 4, in response to this, what does Abraham do? Abraham went. So Abram went. So Abram went. Went. The first part of what God speaks to him in verse 1 is go, go. What does Abraham do? Abram goes. Abram went. Faith without works is dead. Folks, if you don't have faith with your feet, then you don't have faith at all. You might have a counterfeit faith. We must have faith with our feet. This promise is, is big, it's very, it's very grand, God, all God's promises are like that, but you know, if we're honest, it's a little bit fuzzy, 
Go from your country, all that you know, your kindred, all those that you love, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He doesn't even tell him where, where to go. He's just, I, just go. Well, where do you to just go? Yeah, but I mean, north side, just go. Okay. <laughs> and he goes. As the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 75 years old. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered and the people <coughs> excuse me, that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram just began to go. And can we get that map up there, Josh? You have that map. Uh, I don't have my little laser pointer with me this morning, but you'll see down here in the bottom corner, this is originally where Abram and his, and his posse were from, down in Ur. They go up to Haran um, before, he set, before God speaks to him. They're up in Haran, and there God speaks to him, and he tells him just to go, not knowing exactly where he's going. He begins to wander south, down here to Shechem. And uh, that is a distance from Haran down to, the, down to Shechem, uh, just so you get an idea. That's a distance of roughly four to 500 miles. It'd be like walking from here to Nashville, not Nashville, Holmes County, Nashville, Tennessee. Okay? Like, I think I could do Nashville, not that Nashville. Um, but it'd be like walking from here to roughly Nashville, Tennessee, about four to 500 miles. Now, I, again, just Think about this. We're talking about having faith with your feet and trusting the promises of God, even sometimes when things are a little bit fuzzy, okay? He does not know exactly where, where, where he's going, but I, I, four to 500 miles, I don't even like driving four to 500 miles. You're walking and, you know, you got maybe some camels and some donkeys and some stuff. You got to load it up and I don't even know what they did for bathroom breaks on road trips back then, you know? Wherever was good, I guess. Anyway, it, but he, he's, he's going. And so having faith with your feet, it's like he, he did this for a while. It's not like he just took a step or two. He went and he kept on, and he kept on going. But then in verse 7, as we just read, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So when Abram gets to where God wants him to be, even though he didn't know, he, Abram didn't know he was going to be there. But when he got to the place, where God wanted him, then God spoke again. And here's just a little principle in passing is that, guys, as we're obedient and as we have faith with our feet, trusting what we understand from the Scripture, the promises of God begin to come into focus in our lives. Sometimes following Jesus is like this. We don't know exactly where we're going, but we're doing the best we can. But as we just have to do the best we can to obey him by trusting him, and trying to align our lives with his word, the promises of God begin to come into focus in our lives. When we get to where God wants us to be, he knows how to speak to us. And he knows how to give us direction. You'll see here more clarity. Before it was, go to the land that I will show you. Now he says, it's this land. It's this land. To your offspring, I will give this land. So what does Abram do? He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This idea of the altar is important. You're going to see this not just in Abram's life, but throughout the life of many um, Old Testament saints. Is that it, it's this idea of worship. 
Again, if, you, if we've been reading Genesis and we did the first 11 chapters of Genesis last year, if you remember, but um, you see uh, um, Cain and Abel offering some sort of an offering. Uh, Abel's was acceptable to God because it was a blood sacrifice. Cain's was not. Um, but very early, this was part of their worship, that you would build an altar. Altar literally means place of sacrifice or slaughter. Um, and so he'd probably offer up some sort of animal here, built an altar, and then uh, he says the same, and then down in verse 8, let me read verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar, and this is another altar, but it's not too far from where he built the first one. And then he called upon the name of the Lord. He called upon the name of the Lord. And this is, a, this is I, I like this as a little, as, <laughs> don't overcomplicate the Christian life. You go with what you know, you obey what you can, trust in faith, trusting, trusting the Lord. As he begins to give clarity, you just, you build an altar, you worship, you thank him for it, and you call upon his name. You call upon his name. It's really not much more complicated than that. Now, so Abram's doing a pretty good job, okay? He's doing a pretty good, he's doing a pretty good job. He's been obedient so far, but now the famine, the famine hits. And yeah, we've got faith. Yeah, we've had faith with our feet. We've obeyed as much as we can. We've built an altar. We're calling upon the name of the Lord. But what do you do when the famine hits? That's the question. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And I, I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of good verses in this chapter. I really like verse 10. I really like verse 10. It, because what I like about verse 10 is it's just very true to life. Verse 10 resonates with me. Is that you're obeying the Lord, you're trying to follow him, you're trying to do the best you can, but then the famine hits. And fam, guys, famine was a, it was, it was a big deal. Okay, so even back in the day, it's not like they had bottled water. It's not like they, you know, they, you know, they had a, a, a gas station or a Kroger or, you know, or a roadies or whatever. They could just swing into and get some groceries. Like, you, as you were going, you had to find a well, you know, you, you wanted to know where the, wells, where the wells were. You know, you had to have your food. You didn't have refrigerators or anything like that. I mean, when the famine hits, it's a big deal, Okay. You and everybody you love, their life is on the line. And what I like about verse 10 is, that I find encouraging, and, and again, just very true to life, is that the famine, the famine hits, and, and what's interesting is it, God doesn't show up again in this moment. Now hear me, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's faithful. He's given Abram his promise. But in this moment, it's not like the famine hits and immediately God's like, hey, Abram, it's okay. Here's some, you know, magic heavenly water or some manna from heaven, you know, like he does, like he does later. It's just the famine hits and Abraham had been following him and, you know, building an altar, calling upon the name of the Lord. He's doing good. But now the famine hits. And what do you do? And again, what's interesting here is it says that he went down to Egypt to sojourn there. It doesn't say that it's a bad thing for him to necessarily go to Egypt. It doesn't say that he should go to Egypt or shouldn't go to Egypt. And again, sometimes in our life, we're trying to follow God and a famine hits, a crisis hits, a trial hits. And we're like, what do we do? And we just, you know, you kind of feel your way through it. But Abram does do so. Again, whether he would have stayed or whether he should have went down to Egypt, I don't know. But Abram, he does this in his own power. 
He leaves the altar. He leaves this state that he was in of just calling upon the name of the Lord. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. He's like, girl, you good looking. 75 years old, you good looking. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Girl, your good look's going to get me in a lot of trouble. So let's do this, verse 13. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. So Abraham is having faith with his feet. He's following God as best he can. He makes an altar. He calls upon the name of the Lord, but then the famine hits, and now all of a sudden, Abram's back to trusting in his own resources. He's back to trusting in what he can do, in what he can provide. And folks, whenever we, whenever we trust in something of ourselves, it might not be a lie, but it's always going to be something of the flesh. Man's resources are, we can lie, we can scheme. If we have money, maybe we can bribe. If we have position or authority, maybe we can you know, flex our muscle, do that. But it's always something of the flesh. And again, just to be clear here, even though God doesn't show up in this moment, he, why does the famine come? It comes to test his faith. Why does the famine, why does the trial come in our life? It comes to test our faith. And the question is, are we going to continue to build an altar and call upon the name of the Lord? Or are we going to trust in our own resources? So Abram enters Egypt, and the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. <coughs> and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Why does the Lord do this? Abram's the shady guy here, right? He's the one that's not trusting the Lord. He's the one that's telling, telling lies. Why does God do this? Because God made Abram a promise. And he said, those who bless you, I will bless. But those who curse you, I will curse. Despite Abram's unfaithfulness, God is faithful. Aren't you glad that that's true of your life this morning? <laughs> Despite my unfaithfulness, God is faithful. Despite your unfaithfulness, God is faithful. And so, verse 18, again, Abram gets a little bit of a rebuke here from a pagan king, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And so Pharaoh gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so God is faithful, and, and um, God gets him through the famine, and he's sent back now. We don't know exactly how long the famine lasts, but he's sent back actually with some plunder, uh, so to speak, from Egypt. Um, and God has provided for him. Now, a couple of theological implications here that are important. <clears throat> that I want us to get for our own lives, okay? Number one, number one, 
We have greater promises than Abraham. We have greater promises than Abraham. These are some good promises. These are some good promises. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who also bless you and curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We have greater promises. We have greater promises because Abram, what he got here, his promise was like the seed. What we get is the tree. Abram gets the seed. This is, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. There's a theological term uh, that people use called progressive revelation. And it's the idea that throughout the scriptures, it, it's, it, God doesn't have a plan B, folks. Okay? I, we'll talk about that later. But he, he has one plan, but it starts off in a seed form like it is here with Abram. And then it grows and it grows and it grows, and you get more progressive revelation, understanding as you read throughout the scriptures of God's dealing with humanity throughout history. Okay? The Bible makes it very clear that the promise is given to Abraham and to his seed. And I'll show you where I'm getting this from in just a second here. Um, we live on the other side, not just not on the front side like Abraham of the cross, but we live 2,000 years after the cross that Jesus the Messiah, um, the recipient of all the promises, this is how all the nations in Abraham would be blessed, is because the Messiah would come from his line and all those who trusted him, whether you're Jew, Gentile, grew up in church, didn't grow up in church, doesn't matter. If you trust in Jesus, all the promises are yours in Christ Jesus. Let me, let me just read this. I'm going to read a paragraph or two here from John Piper because I don't think I can say this more succinctly uh, than what he does right here. Okay. Um, he says, Genesis makes plain that Abraham did not father a multitude of nations in a physical or political sense. Therefore, the meaning of God's promise was probably that a multitude of nations would somehow enjoy the blessing of sonship, even though physically unrelated to Abraham. And a and little, little aside here before I go back to the quote. Over these next couple weeks, as we're reading through Abraham's life in Genesis, be reading Galatians chapter 3, be reading Romans 4, be reading Hebrews 11, and get the New Testament author's kind of divine commentary on the theological implications of Abraham's life for us, okay? Let me go on here. Um, he, goes, he says, That's no doubt what God meant in Genesis 12:3 when he said to Abraham, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Listen, from the very beginning, God had in view that Jesus Christ would be the descendant of Abraham and that everyone who trusts in Christ would become an heir of Abraham's promise. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So when God said to Abraham 4,000 years ago, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. He opened the way for any one of us, no matter what nation we belong to, to become a child of Abraham and an heir of God's promises. All we have to do is share the faith of Abraham. That is, bank our hope on the promises. So much so that if obedience requires it, we would give up our dearest possession, like Abraham eventually does with Isaac. Does that make sense? This is theologically very, very, very important that you are a son of Abraham this morning if you have placed your faith in Christ. 
Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. And so when I say that we have better promises like, or, or greater promises, I mean, that's like, that's like an, a massive understatement. Folks, we, we live in the fullness of all that God has wanted to do in sending his son through Jesus Christ. Let me, let me give you some more, some more verses here. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Again, try to understand the theological significance over the scope of all of human history. It does not get any bigger than this. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now again, the reason this is important is because I think sometimes we read these stories in the Old Testament about like Abraham or God speaking to Joshua and marching around the walls or you know Moses and bringing the children of Israel out of the Red Sea and we're like, man, if... I understand what you're saying about faith, Aaron, but man, about faith, Eric, and how we got to trust God's promises. But man, God, God showed up. He showed up in a burning bush. You know, He showed up in a cloud of glory. And man, if God would just speak to me that way, He's spoken to us in a better way. He's spoken to us by sending His Son two thousand years ago. He really lived. He really died. He really rose again, and He is the fulfillment of all the promises. And and so. We, we, God has spoken to us. We've been given these promises. The question is, are we going to have faith with our feet and are we going to go share this message of these promises that God offers to anyone who will just trust them? The first words to Abram in, in verse one, go, the first word of the great commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, what, of all nations. The nations have always been. All people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. This has been on the heart of God. He is about saving people. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Abram didn't hear that promise from the risen Messiah, but we do. We have Greater promises. The question is, are we going to have faith with our feet? Are we going to go in light of what we know and share this message? So I talked about how the promises of God, they come into focus as we obey them. Listen, I, this is very practical. I talk to so many people that are like, I mean, here's one, of the, it's like one of the number one questions that people ask, and I'm not knocking it. I've asked it for my own life. I'm sure you've asked it, but it's this, what is God's will for my life? Anybody ever asked that? What is God's will for my life? Okay, I'm going to tell you right now what God's will for your life is. Are you ready? Nobody's excited about this. Are you ready? Yes. Here's it is. His will is that you share the gospel. It is that you tell people about Jesus. And you're like, well, well who? Well, well where? Or to, to what people group? Listen, it might be a little fuzzy, but just begin to obey with your feet. Start with your family. Start with your neighbor. Start with your coworker. As you do that, the promises of God will come into focus. And yes, he might call you to go to China. He might call you to go to Russia. Or he might call you to stay exactly where you're at. But the promises of God will come into focus. God is real. The Holy Spirit is real. 
He can, he can speak to your life and he can give you direction, but you've got to begin to have faith with your feet and share what you know right where you're at. Amen? And so stop, just ask, you know, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? Obey the fuzzy promise that you have, which really isn't fuzzy, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, God saves uh, Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 9. And in Acts 13, Paul with some other guys is in a prayer meeting and the Holy Spirit speaks. And, and the Holy Spirit said, Acts chapter 13, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. Okay? So, but, but here's the deal, is that what a lot of people don't get. If you trace the timeline of the book of Acts, between Acts chapter 9 when Paul gets saved and between Acts chapter 13 when the Holy Spirit speaks for them to go out, there's a period of probably somewhere between 12 to 14 years. So before, again, the promise of God comes into focus for Paul's life, and it's very specific because, again, we're like, man, I just wish God would speak to me that way. I wish he'd say, set apart for me, you know, Eric or James or whoever for the task to which I've called them. But there's a period of 12 to 14 years in between there, and do you know what Paul was doing? While he wasn't exactly sure what God had for him, here's what he's doing. He was sharing the gospel. End of Acts chapter 9, after Paul gets saved, it says, he immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring and, bound, uh, and bring many bound before the chief priests? So Paul, again, as soon as he gets saved, he doesn't know exactly where to go or exactly who to tell, but he's telling somebody. He's telling somebody what Jesus did for him. The question is, will we do the same thing? Secondly, not only do we have greater promises, but we worship at a greater altar. We worship at a better altar. We don't worship at the altar uh, by Shechem, by the Oak of Morah. We don't worship at the altar somewhere between Bethel and Ai. We worship at the altar called Calvary. We worship at the altar of the cross and of the empty tomb. And it's why, you know, like this morning in, in, in prayer, you know, beforehand, like what is our confidence? What is our confidence that God hears our prayer? Our confidence is this, is that Jesus Christ came and he shed his blood and he's made a way for us to come into the Holy of Holies, into the very throne room of God, into his very presence. And the reason God hears our prayers is because of what Jesus did, that he laid down his life on that altar of the cross went to the tomb, and he rose again on the third day so we could find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Are you thankful for the better altar that we worship at this morning? It's incredible. The promises of God are amazing for God's people. Dan, when you guys, we need to learn to do and understand that we're given this book. It's a fairly thick book, amen? It can be a little daunting, but we need to get down into it and understand that this is God's revelation. This is God speaking to us. And the reason he gave it to us is because we need it. And if we'll allow him to tell us from this book what's really important and then believe that it's really important, all of a sudden all sorts of things begin to open up in our life. The promises of God are amazing, but because of like, but when we grow up in church and we just kind of sprinkle these little promises around without any theological root system, what happens is it's like 
it's just an analogy, okay, there's no political statement, but it's like a vaccination. It's a bad analogy, I know, but it's like we get just enough of it to be inoculated to the whole of it. We hear these problems, like, yeah, yeah, and we grow up just immune to them, that God loves me. He works all things together for good in my life. Nothing can separate me from, from, from his love. And we just say it with this kind of ho-hum demeanor because we don't understand. It doesn't get any bigger than this. Throughout history, God has been working to save a sinful humanity that has rebelled against him. And not only save us from the punishment of eternal separation from him, but he saves us not just from that, but for eternal life. It's incredible. This is why, again, we should be getting excited about this stuff. Romans chapter 8. Because we have this better altar, because we have the cross. Paul says, what, what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What do you need this morning? Listen, this isn't a name it, claim it, like, like, like type of thing of just some sort of uh, earthly prosperity. But the Bible just promised you that whatever you need, it is yours in Christ. And God knows what you need. And if you will just continue, build an altar, call upon the name of the Lord, obey him. When I don't know what to do, I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord. I'm going to worship. And as we do that, he is going to meet our needs. He's going to show himself strong. He's going to show that he's still a God that answers prayer. Paul goes on here. I'm just going to continue to read some of these promises in Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, who is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is now interceding for us. So what did the Jesus who came and died and then rose again, what is he doing now? He's interceding for you right now this morning. The reason you can have confidence that you'll wake up a Christian tomorrow is not because of your own strength, but because Jesus is interceding on your behalf in heaven. Unbelievable. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen, shall trip, this, these are rhetorical questions. The answer to all of which is no, nothing will separate us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, like Abram faced, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Why? Through him who loved us. Paul says, I am certain, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? If we just simply will trust the promises of God like Abraham did. We worship at a greater altar, and here's the last thing here, and I'll try to wrap up. <laughs> Third theological implication. We should be a greater blessing to the world. And this is an exhortation or a challenge. We should be a greater blessing to the world. Remember, God tells Abraham in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. It's not by accident that the famine hits, and now Abraham is 
is wandering down to another nation. But when he goes there, he really doesn't become a blessing, he becomes a curse to them. They get plagued because of his disobedience in lying and not trusting in the promises of God. Um, It's interesting, if you can just try to put yourself back in Pharaoh's household, or in the household of the Egyptians back then. I mean, here's just this little nomadic family. They're no big deal at this point at all. Don't look like much, and they come wandering into your land, and all of a sudden, everybody's getting sick. There's plagues breaking out all over the place. And you're just like, what's, what's happening? What's going on? And somehow Pharaoh finds out that it's because Abram lied, and um, it's just crazy. And then you just, you know, he sends them away. Like, glad, that, glad that's over. I don't know what that was all about. Hope that dude stays away. No thank you. Um, But again, if you just think about like all that God was doing in that nation of Egypt at that time, it all revolved around God's people. It all revolved around Abram. And again, it's not a lot of people at this point, it's just his little family. But everything that God was doing all around was just all because of Abram. And this is a big statement, and it's not lost on me that it's a big statement, but I want you to think about it biblically, and you decide whether or not what I'm about to say is true. Folks, everything that God is doing in the world today is still because of his people, the church. I don't care if it's a pandemic, or politics, or a plethora of other things. He is testing the faith of his people. And the question is, in everything that God's doing for his bride, his body, his family, the church, we are the apple of his eye. The question is, are we going to trust his promises and be a blessing to the nations? Or are we going to trust in our own resources and become somewhat of a curse. Are you with me? All the junk over the last couple years that's just hit the fan. How we respond matters. We're going to respond in our own strength. We're going to respond in our own schemes and what we can pull off. Or are we going to respond as the people of God, saying, "I don't know exactly what's happening, but I, my eyes are on Jesus. I'm trusting Him." And world, you might not know what's going on, but I'm telling you, look to him. He has never failed me. He has never failed. He has never failed his people, amen? Ever. But how quick we are, how quick we are when the famine hits to trust in ourselves. Folks, let's not do that anymore. Amen? Let's not do that anymore. God has never failed us. Worship to me, you can come up. We're going to begin to close. I, this idea of being, being a blessing to the nations, um, <coughs> it's, you know, we're to, we're to point people to him by looking at him ourselves. That we're gazing upon him. Hebrews chapter 11 says that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. It's like we read about this morning. 
By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of these same promises. For he was looking. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations who designer and build, whose designer and builder is God. A few verses later in Hebrews chapter 11. It says that he died not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. He says, people who speak like this make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. But if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Folks, this is what we're supposed to be doing to the watching world around us as God's people. We're to have our, our eyes fixed on Jesus. You know, I have a friend, I have two friends, and they have a friend um, who's an elderly gentleman um, that has a mental handicap. And this guy, this gentleman calls them every day, and these guys are his, his buddy. And they, he calls them every day, and, they, and he just tells the, says the same things every day, and they talk. But he always ends, this guy, when he calls my friends, he always, ends, he always ends the phone conversation with this, and he'll say, and remember, keep your eye on the eastern sky, for our redemption draweth nigh. <laughs> Amen? Keep your eye there. I, if I can tell one more, it's kind of going to be kind of a weird story. Um, it kind of illustrates the point. A couple years ago, I was driving on Weaver Ridge, just past the stink plant, Amen. You with me? <laughs> Praise the Lord for the stink plant. Hallelujah. Um, past those sharp turns, I'm heading towards trail, and it was snowy. Everything was white. And off to the right, as you go past the stink plant there a little ways, on the right, there's just kind of, the hill just kind of rolls up, and there's a little bit of a ridge. And I'm going, and I see several cars pulled over, pulled over in front of me. And I didn't know if it was just because of the snow or if there was an accident or what. But as, so I slowed down. And as I get closer, though, I see all, everybody in their car. I see the little profile of their head. They're all looking off to the right. And they're staring at something. And this is where the story gets weird. I'm not making this up. This, was, this happened, okay? But I, as we're looking over there, right on the ridge, and everything was white, so you could see it real perfectly. I, you're going to think I'm crazy. I'm not making this up. But there was this animal, and it, was, it looked like a giant wolf. I, this is where I lost everybody, I know. But the, I'm telling you, this, I, and, and everybody, and it, we, I don't, to this day, I don't know what it was. I think it was a wolf that like, got loose somewhere. I don't know. You're like, this guy has gone. I, I know, I'm just telling you what happened, okay? And here's the point of my illustration. That it was their looking that made me stop and look. I wouldn't have seen it. But because they were looking, it made me look. And folks, when we don't know what to do, when the famine hits, if we'll just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, keep your eye on the eastern sky for our redemption draweth nigh, it's going to cause other people to stop and look and say, what are you looking at? We are looking at our hope and our salvation. We are looking for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has never failed us. And if you want to stop and you want to look with us, you too will be saved what we do as God's people and how we're a blessing to the nations. I want you to stand with me. Stand with me. We're going to take communion today. Um,